And I'm Katie. And welcome back to Generally Specific Topics Between Friends. Best friends. A reminder for all our dedicated listeners out there, we are on the general topic of the inner child. Now, this week we're going to be diving into, what did we call it? Institutionalized imagination? Yes. Yes. So, the institution we are going with is psychology. Mm-hmm. So, first, I'm going to take you on a journey. A journey. About the history of the theory of the inner child. Mm-hmm. Because we hear, like, the inner child, but it has a source, and that source is... Oh, uh, well, the first guy that said it was Eric Byrne. Who? Wow. <laughs> in 1961 in cool. his book. Awesome. And you may be thinking, dear listener, why didn't we start with, like, discussing what the theory is? Well, you know what? We start with what we know, which is us being silly together. And stuff like research takes time. Mm-hmm. It does. It takes, like, a few days to get together because we can't just go spewing Wikipedia. We got to find the reliable sources. Mm-hmm. I got on psychology today for you guys. Mm-hmm. I read articles. Articles. Full-blown. Like an article. But here it is. So, like I said, Eric Byrne, 1961, was the first one to say the phrase. Coin the phrase, even? Yes. <laughs> the inner child. And since then, the theory of the inner child has been very important, particularly to psychotherapy. So, basically, what we're talking about is that each person physically has a tiny human that lives inside your heart and gets sad and angry sometimes. Yes, just like we're living with a spooky skeleton inside us. <laughs> Within a, the spooky skeleton... There's is, also a baby. There's also a baby. <laughs> and we must nurture them lest they pop out. Alien oh, style. Obviously, it's, it's not a physical thing, but there is something to... In your unconscious, there is... A small person. Inside Katie is a little Katie. (laughs) Inside Becca is a little Becca. And they need to be nurtured and loved and indulged to a point. (laughs) To a point where you are still a functioning adult. Right. So, a lot, a lot of people's issues come from we're not taking care of our inner children. We are stifling our creativity or we're only accessing our inner child when With unhealthy unhealthy yeah. means. Yeah. Drugs and alcohol, like I said last week. <laughs> not the best way to go about bringing out a child. No, no, don't don't, don't give do a child drugs and alcohol. Give it love and nurture, patience, time. So, I mean, I think we all are a bit ridiculous sometimes and we think why am I so upset or sensitive about this and I think well I think psychotherapy thinks Mm -hmm. that that's just going back to your inner child has a need that you need to meet in order to move forward and truly being a all caps adult is learning to take care of and parent your own inner child 
And I just love that. <laughs> Now, what that makes me think about is people who have actual children. Neither, mm -hmm. neither of us have actual children. So can you imagine trying to parent a child child while also parenting your inner child? That's a lot of children to take care of. Can you imagine, like, really young parents, like, mm, when you get pregnant in high school? When you're a child and you have a child? Yeah. But you also have to foster your inner child? Yeah. Like, uh, that shit's hard. Yeah. That sounds rough. Sorry. Young parents, we empathize and sympathize with your plight. Yeah, no, I can't imagine. Like, I love children and working with children, but I am still way too selfish to care for someone else's child 24-7. Yeah. I'm still taking care of me and my inner yeah, child. It is so hard to take care of you as a person just on your own. Yeah. All of your needs being met. Yeah, I'm a handful. Yeah. I get fussy. <laughs> you do. I don't like to go to the doctor. You don't. I don't like to make phone calls. I don't like to cook healthy meals. I like doing that. I don't know. Sometimes. Sometimes. It depends. I'm not consistent. So I really, I love that idea, though, that we are parenting ourselves and we can just assess if we're having a hard time. We could say, am I taking good care of the little me? Social emotional learning. Mm -hmm. We have to be cognizant of our metacognition and what we are thinking and why we are thinking it and how we are feeling and what is the root cause. Right. It's a whole thing. It really is. Mm -hmm. Real quick, being an adult and citing what my inner child read on the internet real quick was um, from Psychology Today. This was an excerpt from Dr. Diamond's book, Psychotherapy for the Soul, 33 Essential Secrets for Emotional and Spiritual Self-Healing. So I got this from Stephen Diamond, and thank you. <laughs> thank you for your wise information, because like I said, it's like a thing we hear about, and it's, you know, right. it's in TV, it's in movies, but it's kind of different to like look at it as an actual thing with like yeah. actual history behind it. I think we have all have some idea of like, oh yeah, inner child, but yeah, there's a whole It's a whole sect of psychology. Yeah. People yeah. devote time and energy to it, and mm -hmm. we think you should too. More on that later. Okay, so diving into let's talk about um You know, fostering inner child, imaginative play, creativity and all that. We want to talk about our experiences with Montessori learning. Yes. Now, Montessori is a really hard word to spell. I know how to spell it now. I had to write it so many times. Yes. So please tell us real quick in okay. case you're interested. M-O-N-T-E-S-S-O-R-I. I yes. was almost certified. She, she was trained all the way. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's whole, a whole thing. thing. Anyway, <laughs> so we both, we met in our Montessori elementary school. In the first grade. And a lot of you guys have probably seen signs around for Montessori preschools. Those are popping up everywhere. Yeah. And they can just throw that word on a building. So you want to make sure they actually use the methods taught by... Maria Montessori. Yes, this is a methodology for teaching children, mm -hmm. usually preschool age children. It is really her biggest work was ages three to six. Mm -hmm. And my interaction with it was pre-K would have been five, four. Pre-K would have been four, mm -hmm. but I had it all the way up through six, well, all the way up through eighth grade. Sorry. Mm -hmm. I had it from the age of four 
Through the age of 13, 14-ish. Yeah. I had it from the age of two, as my dad was a Montessori teacher and got me in the school as soon as possible. Age of two to third grade, so like nine years old. And then I had to move to a public school. Now, caveat, our school was a public school. Yeah. But... It was also a magnet school. It was a magnet Montessori school Mm -hmm. for the visual and performing arts. And my middle school was for the environmental sciences. So these were not a charter school, but they had a specific, you know, thing that they were devoted to. Yeah, and you could go there if it was... Yes. And for those of you who don't know what a magnet school is, it's pretty cool... It's a school where you don't have to be within district lines to go there. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, like your, I don't know what they call it, your school lines. Like if you have two high schools in a city, but you live on the left side, so you have to go to left side high school. Yeah. But a magnet school, you apply usually and then you get in. So it's not about where you live, which I think is great. <laughs> it is, especially considering how crowded schools can be. and Yeah. There are good schools and bad schools, unfortunately. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Anyway, back to the topic at hand. Montessori, if Mm -hmm. you guys have never heard about, like, Montessori method, let's talk a little bit about what it looks like and how it differs from, like, say, a a regular PS123 type (laughs) school. Okay, so y'all, like I said, it started with Maria Montessori, and she wanted to find a way to better teach children. She started with helping kids with disabilities, but then she thought, if this works so well for the children with disabilities, how well can it work for your average neurotypical child? And so it's all about like hands-on learning and choice-based learning. Like there's a whole section called practical life mm-hmm. where which doesn't that sound great? That's so smart. When, when you go to school and you learn practical skills yeah, for like, life. Yes, teach your preschooler to tie a knot, to sweep up a mess. Guys, I was an art teacher for four years, and the amount of kids who can not tie a knot. And cannot sweep. In high school. In high school, mind you, cannot hold scissors correctly. Yeah. They cannot hold... These are 16-year-olds. Cannot hold scissors. Okay. And, yeah, Montessori method, you're coming out of your three- to six-year-old class, you know how to sweep. You know how to tie a knot. You know how to pour liquids. You know how to do so many things. Arrange flowers. And that's just the practical life section. There's also math. There's also uh, language. (laughs) There's also, yeah, sensorial. So, like, seeing the, like, physical differences between the things and learning to order things, learning order of operations. Critical. Really critical skills for children to develop. And it really sets a firm foundation for the rest rest of your life. I agree. I I 100% agree that I am the person I am because of Montessori learning. Yeah, we are pro-Montessori in this household. Yes. (laughs) Come at us if you are not. Um, Montessori also has um, a lot of emphasis on... The supplies and the materials Mm -hmm. are pretty crucial because, you know, a little tiny kid, a six-year-old, can't learn, like, spatial reasoning from a book or from, you know, you need the objects. You need physical objects that can be manipulated, manipulatives. I think it is cruel to make a young child learn everything from worksheets. It is. And... 
Yeah. You, you need both. Yeah. You like, need the hands-on experience, and then you can abstract that into a worksheet. Yes. You need both. You need all. You need everything that a kid might be able to learn from. Yeah. And also in Montessori, it's cool because everything is like child size. That's a big deal. The prepared environment, which is the classroom, is the child comes in. There are pictures hanging at their eye level. There, everything is the within shelves, reach yeah, for them. The shelves yeah. are smaller, within reach. You can yeah. reach the tallest shelf because everything's child size. So it's not like a traditional school where it's for the teacher. The teacher shows everything to the class. It's the child can come into this environment and in a lot of ways teach themselves. I definitely like that is the number one thing I remember was I would see the teacher, you know, personally I, I don't know how often, but she would sit with me only mm-hmm. for certain periods of time and show me things and I would show her things. Um, but it was not super often that she talked to the whole class at once. Yes. It's a lot of one-on-one lessons. And yes. Then, and yeah. the way that works out is like maybe at the beginning of the day you have, you know, the whole class comes together, learn something new, do yeah. some activities Circle together. Time. Circle time. And then the kids branch off and you train them from an early age to know these are your options. This is what you need to be working towards. So I remember, I, I don't know why I only remember the math things I was supposed to do because there was tons of other things I needed to do but there was a box on a shelf somewhere Mm -hmm. and there was a list of cards and it was like this is card one this is card 1a this is card 1b this is card 1c Mm -hmm. they were in order and I had to try and work through all the cards at my own pace yeah so it was up to me to remember or look in my book and see where I was and I would take the items off the shelf and I would do what was on the card until I understood that one, and then I could move on. And you wouldn't have been able to do that on your own until you had received the lesson for that work. Yeah. So it's like each work, each lesson on the shelf, you get a new lesson from the teacher, and then once you can do it, the teacher says, now you may choose this work whenever you like. Mm -hmm. And then you can choose what you want to do and pace yourself through it until... Mm -hmm. You understand it. And then usually I'm sure you call the teacher over and say, I finished. Yeah, you get your work checked and then you put it back as you found it. Mm, Yes. (laughs) Can you imagine children putting back things where they got them? Like you had to. There was no way. Yeah, there was no way not to. Yeah. You take it out, you put it up. Yep, because you have that respect for the materials and for your class that you do. You do the thing. You do the thing. Yeah. authentic, well-run Montessori classroom is a beautiful thing to behold. Mm -hmm. And I think ours, you know, I think it was. I always remember it being great. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Loved it. Also, other aspects of Montessori learning is the outdoor area. We Mm, had an outdoor garden. We did. And we would grow plants and we would check on them. Um, (laughs) We had a track that we would walk around in the mornings. That might have been for older kids, but I know like fourth, fifth, sixth grade, whenever you got there in the morning, you would walk around the track in the morning. Yeah. There was also like, there was a playground, but I remember just playing in the big field area behind the school. There was a playground and then there was the basketball tennis court and then there was the giant open field with the hill that you could roll down. Mm -hmm. Lots of really cool things in Montessori. Um, 
I remember like separating and dividing your space was really important, and we did mm-hmm. that with the rugs. Yeah, you have a mat, and the mat defines your workspace. So before you even choose a work, you go get a mat, you roll it out on the floor. Well, I guess you have to choose your work because you have to know if it's a table work yeah. or a floor work. But yeah, you have a defined workspace, and so no one is allowed to come and step on your mat and mess up your work, and you're not going to step on anyone else's mat. So it's just, there's a lot of respect and there's a lot of like respecting the dignity of the child in a Montessori classroom, which I think is awesome. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember having a fair amount of free time. I feel like that's probably what you're gleaning from this. You're thinking the kid does whatever they want. Yeah. And that is not inherently a bad thing. Think to yourself, a child the age of six who doesn't have a cell phone, okay? <laughs> think think about that for a minute. A child who doesn't have a TV, doesn't have a cell phone, doesn't have video games, right? They're in a classroom. If they have free time, they're going to do something that helps them. They are, and I love this. So the part of this that really excites me is it's like child-centered play therapy where there's basically the idea that you, as the person, as the child know what you need. So a child in the Montessori classroom is going to naturally be inclined to the lessons that will help them grow and learn. And they'll be curious about language. They'll go through a language period and only want to do language works. And then suddenly they'll be like, no, this math stuff is really cool. And they'll learn so much math. So given the option, most children, if they are brought up in this, can really just learn a lot a lot it's really cool (laughs) and as a kid if you had free time you were reading you were hyped about Mm -hmm. the reading corner so that you could read and take the test online and get your ar points and spend them at the store oh yeah (laughs) so you know i would i'm not gonna lie i would rush through my work like i did it and i did it well but i was trying to finish before everyone else even as a kid so that I would have the most time. Always competitive. Yes, always competitive so that when I was done, I could have the time to do what I wanted to do, do, which was either reading or looking through books on the bookshelf or doing some of the works that were more like puzzles. That was fun. Or drawing or writing stories or coming up with made up languages with my friends like kids or building a home for the erasers on your desk. Yes. They're very constructive things that kids want to do. And thinking that play is not constructive is all wrong, especially for young children. That is what what we were trying to get across to you is if a kid is playing with erasers, it is good for them. Yeah. If you see a small child, like a two-year-old, knocking over a bucket and picking it back up again, and your inclination is to be like, that's stupid, stop. (laughs) They are learning physics. They are learning gravity. They are learning about the weight. They are learning about the sound. They're learning about how their body moves in space. Yes, how their body moves, how other objects move in space. Let kids play. Like, the the book learning and worksheets and writing, it's all important. But let kids play, because that, that is also growing their brain. It really is. Don't think it isn't. I'll shame you. Yes. <laughs> and don't underestimate hands-on learning. Yeah. Because... I'm sure a lot of you as adults fumble 
with your hands a lot. <laughs> if if you ever thought about like, oh, my hands are all shaky and I can't, you know, you have problems with your fine motor skills. Well, some of us just have shaky hands. Yeah, some of us just have shaky hands. But I mean, like, if it's because you haven't used your hands enough in your life because yeah. you spent all of your time not making things or not playing with, you know, kinesthetic toys and doing things like that, you're going to be behind on that. Like, if you were one of those yeah. kids in high school when they asked you to make a big poster board project and you were just like, oh, because you knew it was going to be ugly, it's just a matter of you never practiced cutting paper enough. You never practiced fancy lettering enough because right. it just wasn't something that you had time for or that your teachers pushed for. So if you are raising or educating a child, please... Make sure they're getting those fine and gross motor skills. So, like, fine motor skills is the fingers doing small things. Gross motor skills is their whole body's big movement movements in their space. It's mm -hmm. all important. Yes. Crucial. All right. So, that, that kind of covers, like, Montessori mm -hmm. experiences. So, Katie, what's it like in public school? Okay. <laughs> so, let me tell you about public school now. Um, I'm going to kind of compare it to my high school experience because my high school was also a magnet school. Mm -hmm. And not only was it a magnet school, again, a public school, it was a public high school, magnet school. It was also an academy. Now, there are a few academies popping up and it is pretty cool. Think of it, it's it's a lot like um, like a STEAM or STEM type so like situation. a more specialized, focused yes. school experience. Which I think a lot of people think about charter schools. That is mm -hmm. the plus of having a charter school is that they can be specialized. But hey, it was a public school and they specialized in, I want to say, six to eight different subjects, right? So I did engineering in high school. What that means is from ninth grade to twelfth grade, I took dual credit engineering classes. Mm -hmm. The whole time. Um, other people were in finance. They were in health sciences. They were in environmental sciences, information technology, all sorts of different academies. And that was... But wait, where was the football team? Oh, th th there wasn't one. We had no sports in my school because instead of focusing on football and basketball and baseball and track, which are great... We focused on engineering and finance and information technology, and the money went to those things. Meanwhile, every one of my uh, history teachers and uh, I would say half of my science teachers. Math? Uh, sort of a couple math, one English. Some of the coaches that were forced to be teachers were good teachers. Most of them should have just been coaches. Yes. But that's not an option because of some UIL rule. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, the school I worked at my first year, every single coach had to be a teacher mm -hmm. and every almost every core teacher had to be a coach. You, Yeah, whether you you're good at both. it or not. <laughs> yes, whether you were good at it or not, in order to be a coach, you have to be a teacher. Unless you're some giant school or a college or something, you, you don't get to just be a coach. But yeah, I didn't have a history class I liked until college. And I was bad at history and geography and tried to go to tutorials and couldn't because it was during football practice. Oof. So I have some real issues with that. Yes. And again, not to say that all coaches are bad teachers. It's just in our personal experience, a lot of the teachers who are coaches are not teachers first. They are coaches first. Yeah. 
That has been our experience. If you're a great coach, go be a great coach. I don't think you should be forced to teach if you're not good at it and don't have a passion for it. Exactly. Teachers can't just be teachers. Yeah. (laughs) You have to want it. Um, So, yeah, that was kind of our different high school experiences. So I feel like there was a ton of project-based learning at my school, Mm -hmm. especially like I still have a ton of English, English projects. English was super project heavy. I made dioramas. I made books. I made videos and movies. I made songs like every single English class had multiple projects that we did. Yeah. Uh, Let alone like Obviously, the engineering class was you are making all of these things. You know, I did CAD. I did like a CNC mill. That's computer something design. Now I feel bad. That's that's the like 3D designing software that's on a computer. Um, I use it now or I have used it now as an adult to 3D print. But Mm -hmm. back then we could only, you know, just have it on the computer as a 3D object. Um, I did some soldering, and we made a marble sorting machine. In phys- physics of technology, we did, like, the whole hot air balloon, the egg drop, the um, mousetrap race car, like, all of those sort of things. So all of my classes had tons of projects. That's awesome. That's how people learn. <laughs> I feel like I learned a lot. <laughs> did you have a lot of worksheets i had some really good teachers and in my good classes i feel like i learned a lot i did cool projects um i feel like where my high school show shined shown Um, shined the brightest was in the extracurriculars i had a lot of fun in drama and band so there was that But, yeah, I don't feel like I had the best education at that school. And I do feel like you were better prepared for college. I was 100% better prepared for college because my school was obviously very Mm academic-based. So all of the money went to PSATs. It was always paid for. Um, SATs were paid for if you were on free and reduced lunch, which most people were. All of these dual credit courses were paid for. Mm -hmm. All of these AP courses were paid for, and they paid for the test. You had to take the test if you were enrolled in the course. They paid for it all. So that is where the money went. And we also had, yeah, um, SAT prep courses. We had a college transition course, along with all the other, you know, dual credit courses that you had to take. Yeah, I could have really used a college transition course because I did not transition well into college. I was I was so ready for the transition, y'all. Yeah. I, I had it all planned out. I spent the whole, like, last year, you know, my whole senior year, I had classes to fully prepare me. I wrote all of my scholarship papers in that course. There was a designated time and place oh, to write that. That's nice. I think my counselor was like, apply for scholarships. Aw, no. <laughs> we, we had someone guide us through it step by step. We talked about how grants worked, how yeah. everything worked. That's what you need, because I feel like most parents aren't equipped for that. No. Because it changes. It really does. It does. Oh. So that's... That was what my my high school was like. It was very full of projects, choice, mm-hmm. and a fair amount of imagination. I was given a lot of freedom in most of my projects. I had that in some things, but yeah, I would totes trade our high school experience. Well, not trade, because you no yeah. one should have to deal with that. 
but yeah, you would have liked to have partaken. Yeah, little jelly. Mm-hmm. Okay, so hop on to now. Um, like I said, I just ended my fourth year teaching in a public high school. The high school I was at was nine ten campus, so thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, mostly fifteen, sixteen year olds, and there's a lot of issues. Mm-hmm. Luckily. In my district, we were very well funded with the fine arts. There was a lot of money for a lot of different things. Good. Um, but. And, well, in art, we were given plenty of freedom to run our classroom the way we wanted. Yeah. But I know the core classes did not have quite as much freedom. They had to teach to the test. Yes. That is one of the big issues. And one of my other friends who I went to college with her and she got the same degree I did. That's what she said. She said standardized testing. It takes precedent over like any other sort of instruction. Yeah. There's no kinesthetic learning whenever the test is a hundred multiple choice questions. Because then the learning is how do you figure out which two answer choices are the dummy answers and you can mark those off first then you have to figure out which one between the two that are almost exactly the same you know yeah it is a test taking course and there's definitely no time for like character building lessons like how to be a good person that was our big push these last two years was (laughs) how to be a better like person and be in better control of your like emotions and your mental state so they understood that it was like severely lacking because of teaching to the test. Yep. <laughs> and let's see. Uh, creativity and choice, especially when you get in the high school level, I feel like there's just not a lot of it. Yeah. I feel like... I feel like there are probably opportunities to be creative, but not a ton of choice. You're told, like, this is what you have to do. Yes. And I asked around to a few of my other friends about, like, true choice-based learning, um, we, we went over it a little bit in college about what that would look like. And I think we had someone come in and talk about how they ran their art classroom with choice-based learning. And now, if it's truly choice-based, your classroom is set up kind of like a Montessori room where you have all of these like different centers of where the supplies are located mm-hmm. and everything is kind of grouped together in a way that makes sense for children. And so usually the teacher will give a lesson and... That lesson can be implemented that day or children can pull from past lessons or they can go off on their own, but they come up with a plan of action. Mm -hmm. They do what needs to be done and then they talk their teacher through what they did, how they did it, why they did it, what they think they could improve on. That sounds really cool. Yeah. for, For little kids, like I said, whenever given the choice, kids will do good. What happens if you let a teenager that just wants to play on their phone do what they want? (laughs) Then they just play on their phone. Uh, Yeah, that is the issue with it works for younger grades if you can take away other sort of distractors. Yeah, or if you have just really good older kids or that maybe the, have grown up in that. Yes, or the main thing is smaller class sizes. Yeah, maybe don't put, what, what did you have, 32? Yeah, 32 was about the biggest my classes <laughs> ever got, but all of my classes were pushing 30 plus. God, Except for one. I'm oh. scared of, like, more than one teenager in a room. Yes. <laughs> I can't and then, imagine. And then you have to think about younger grades. They do get caps, but 25 little kids, 20 to one. to one teacher, or 20 little kids, 
there's just no way to implement something like that because you can't monitor everyone. You can't you can't even help everyone. If every single kid was doing great, that's what killed me in some of my classes. Even if they were good classes, these kids had questions. Yeah. And if there's 30 of them, I can't, you know, I'm sorry you have to wait. Stop what you're doing while I answer the five people's questions in front of you. Yeah, an exaggerated example of this. When I was teaching Montessori, and I taught the toddler class, like one to two-year-olds, and you may think, you can't teach one to two-year-olds. Well, you can, (laughs) especially with Montessori. So I started my last school year with four children in my class, and it was awesome. They were learning so many things. And then I got a few more kids. I was initially told my class capped at eight because they're so young. But then it turns out they could put in one more and then one more, one more and then one more. So then I was told it capped at 10. Then I overheard that she would be comfortable putting 12 children in my room. So it really got ridiculous. Yeah. Do you think there's a difference between four children and 12 children in terms of what? what attention they get. So, yeah, by the end of the school year, I was like, I am not teaching them. It is a good day if no one gets injured. We have gone from a Montessori classroom to a chaotic daycare center, and I'm sorry that, you know, the children and the parents did not get that same good Montessori experience. Like, I did my best, but... But you're just a person. Yeah. With toddlers, like... You have all of their needs to consider their physical needs of changing their diapers, yeah. feeding them whenever they cry, whenever they sneeze, whenever they throw bark, up, whenever they throw up, whenever they get their clothes dirty, whenever they have to go whenever down they for a nap, fall and smack their head every fifteen seconds. Yes. So yeah, it was a lot, and it was like I went from teaching these little humans to just putting out their fires all day. Right, and that's how I felt as well. Yeah, twenty kids felt like a miracle to me. Yeah. 20 kids, whenever, you know, it was skip day or they were all sick or whatever, 20 kids was like, oh, this is wonderful. Yeah. Because compared to the 30 kids, yes, that's what it is. It is putting out fires. It is, it's not, (laughs) it's not the way to learn, let alone the the good kind of learning that is project-based, that is based on imagination and play, that is based on choice. Because whenever I I tried to give my kids as much choice as possible, but with 30, I can't go around the class and ask 30 of them what their plan is, help them get started, tell them my thoughts. And you just, there's just too many of them. Yeah. And not even to mention the behavioral issues that (laughs) pop up. Yes. So I think a a lot, if not all of the problems, all the problems would be solved if there was just less kids in a class or more teachers in the class. More assistance for the teachers. Right. Because Because then the kids can get the attention they need to grow. And I really feel like you were doing like three jobs. Oh, I for sure. (laughs) Not even counting my first job where I was literally doing three jobs because I had art and journalism and yearbook and (laughs) photography. Whenever you, like, literally do all the jobs. Fresh out of college. Fresh out of college. Welcome to education. Yes, that is what it is like. (sighs) Parents, I guess right now, since everyone is homeschooled, you have a better idea of what teachers go through. But, yeah, if your child is struggling in a particular class or you don't agree with something a teacher is doing, maybe just consider 
the teacher's situation, what that classroom is like, how many kids are there, who's in that class, because most teachers, I would say, are trying their best. Yes, and I would say most. There are 100% teachers, like we said, who don't want to be teachers. Yeah, that don't actually have the passion for teaching. Yes, and they should not be teachers. They should be held accountable. But for all the teachers trying their best... With what limited resources they have. Yeah. Don't be mad whenever your kid doesn't have 100 in their class and blame the teacher and ask why. Yeah. Ask your kid first. Okay, we're, we're going off on a tangent. We are. <laughs> okay. Creativity. Mm-hmm. We understand that not every single class can have it 24-7, but with younger kids, it is crucial. It is. It is crucial to have time to play, to have time to be imaginative, to have time and the options to choose for oneself. Because, like, how else are you going to learn what you like and don't like? You know, you turn 14, 15, 16, and they're like, all right, time to start planning your life. And if you have not been exposed to the different things that you may or may not like or may or may not be good at, then there's no way for you to choose the right thing. Right. And then you change your major six times in college. Yeah. (laughs) And then you just keep flip-flopping because you don't know because you didn't get a chance to choose. (laughs) (sighs) What else? Oh, yeah. I have a fun anecdote before I forget since we were talking about what it's like in a high school classroom. Mm -hmm. One of my fondest memories is whenever my 3D students had to do a construction, deconstruction sculpture. So like an assemblage sculpture made out of found objects. So I had a big tub of donated like toys and decorations and just random like trash type. Yeah, junk. I had a junk tub and I required the kids to bring in an object and then they were allowed to use one or more of my objects to create a sculpture. Now, since most of my donated objects were toys, you best believe these 16-year-old boys with, like, (laughs) most of a beard ran up to these, like, G.I. Joe dolls, grabbed them, and grabbed the, like, skateboard, and was just like, (laughs) like, yeah, they immediately played with the toys. And I did not stop them. No, because that's precious. It was so cute to watch (laughs) them literally play with the toys. It was less precious to watch them smash the toys, but that was part of the assignment, so it's okay. But I swear every single kid played at least a little bit. Yeah. And because it was such a strange thing to do, they had to think about, like, what am I trying to make? How am I going to make it? How silly can I be? I really liked the really silly things. I tried to encourage them. They were like, well, these could be her eyes and these could be her wings. And I was like, (laughs) yeah, yeah, that's totally what that could be. What about those? I bet starting from a place of silliness and play helped them make more creative projects. Oh, their stuff was weird. Yeah, that's awesome. And that was the last project of the year, like the last full project, because I was like, we're going to be chill. We're going to not fun. We're going to have fun. It's not going to be too serious. You're going to get to destroy. You're going to get to create. You're going to get to see all these things from your childhood that you remember playing with. And you get to play with them again for a little bit. That's awesome. Yeah. And it was it was so nice to see. Kids love Legos, by the way. <laughs> Kids and adults. Yeah. Always. No matter what age you are, you want to make something. Also, Play-Doh. I feel like Play-Doh is mm-hmm. an instant. Universal. Yeah. Most adults still love playing with Play-Doh. And yeah, it's just, it's so important. If you see a child 
or a teenager or an adult or anyone playing, don't you dare stifle it. Now, to the Yu-Gi-Oh! group in my high school, y'all were way beyond, above your time, beyond your time. Y'all were ahead of your time. There we go. <laughs> I knew there was a word that meant it. Y'all were yeah. ahead of your time. They went full out with their Yu-Gi-Oh! games, and I bet they had a blast. Yeah, and that's beautiful. That's beautiful. So, like we touched on earlier, as adults, we often struggle with depression, anxiety, substance abuse, and... A lot of it can really be rooted in you're not caring for or nurturing your inner child. So just do it. Just do it. And next episode, we're going to try and give you some tips and tricks on how to do that. Since I know we're just telling you to do something without giving you, you know, a whole lot of steps on how to do that. Yes. And if you are part of our usual polling group, we will be reaching out as to how you access your inner child or how you think others should access their inner child. We want to know. Yes. And I also want to hear, again, we said this last time, I want to hear these stories because I have such specific memories that I can recite to you guys. And I know you must have those too. From your childhood? Yeah, from your childhood, from your school experiences, from when you were little and you used to play. Just really fun things. Ooh, should I tell someone's story? I I forgot. We did ask a few people about, you know, what they did as children that they remember. And it's always going to be super precious and silly. (laughs) I'm going to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That one. Do it. (laughs) So my friend, he's a boy. He was telling me about how him and his brother used to play. And the cutest one, he told me about a bunch of different things they used to do. But the cutest one was he called it. Oh, it was stiff stiff dolly, floppy dolly. (laughs) Right? Yeah, stiff dolly, floppy dolly. I think so. That's what she said. So they would go back and forth. And it was like a posing game. Like, I'm sure I've done it. You do it at parties or whatever, where you have to pretend to be like a Barbie doll or something. Or it's a theater warm up. Yeah, theater warm up. That's what it is. So somebody has to pose you. They do it on whose line is it anyway? Oh, yeah. Yes. So if you were a stiff doll, you had like jointed arms and legs and you had to hold your position. So they like you would pose them in a silly pose and they had to stay that way. Or if you were a floppy dolly, that means you're like a rag doll and you just get to get thrown around. That is precious. Isn't that so cute? And this is what he played with his brother? Yeah. Stiff dolly, floppy dolly. (laughs) And I love that that's what they called it. You know. I remember making up a game, like, I mean, you make up games all the time as a kid. It's it's a constant thing. Yeah. I just remember playing... Oh, what did we call it? Something, it was like sharks, where one person was the shark and the other person was a fish, and we would play it in our front yard, and oh, there's just so many stories. Like, it all comes back to you. Try try and think about it for a while, listener. Yeah, and, reminisce on things that made you so happy when you were young. Yes, and then type it out for us so yeah. that we can talk about it. Yeah, written responses are great. BT Dubs, if you want to send us a written response, you can reach us at gstbfbf at gmail.com or on Instagram at gstbfpod. Plug it in. Yes. So tell us your fun stories. Tell us how you access your inner child now as an adult. Or if you are struggling, tell us about your struggles. Maybe we can help. Yeah. Because we are heckin' silly over here, guys. We are, and we have the time and space to be creative and silly, and we want to share it with you. Yes, we do. So let us know. Yeah. 
Well, thank you guys. Thanks for tuning in to Generally Specific Topics Between Friends. Best friends. Bye. Bye.